Those who were here last night will know that we looked at the 18th century. And, uh, Sorry, can we just turn this up a little bit? Like, yeah. Yeah. Can we, uh, keep talking. Keep talking. Yeah, let's lift the mic. Let's get this so we're getting it good. Right, yeah, go on. Just lift it more. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Can you all hear now? I really don't like people who shout. <laughs> heard that. Okay, can you hear that now? That's good. Those who were here last uh, evening will know that we looked at the 18th century and the impact that several evangelists made on our country during that century. That century came to a close with the death of John Wesley in 1791. And as he brought that century to a close, things were beginning to change, especially with the Industrial Revolution. That had been going about 20, 25 years, and things were about to change and are still changing today at a, at a rapid pace. When John Wesley was born, the population of, of England and Wales was around 5, 6 million. When he died, the population had gone up to 9 million. By the end of the following century, the end of the 19th century, the population of England and Wales was around 36 million. So the population of our land had, had quadrupled. And, and with those hundred years, many, many changes came about. For example, John Wesley spent all his life riding on, on the back of a horse. Those days were coming to an end. In came steam power, in came rail power. And so things like horses and that form of transport disappeared. By the way, all of John Wesley's preachers used to travel by horse. And he had some rules for his preachers. And rule number one is this. At the end of your day, no matter how long you've traveled, how long you've preached, your first responsibility is to show kindness to your animal by feeding it and watering it and bedding it down for the night. And John Wesley used to say, I can tell how deep grace has gone into a man's heart by how he treats his animals. And if you know anything about revival, when revival has come, think of the 1904 revival, when grace enters a man's heart, he looks at animals in a different way. Who started the RSPCA? Wilberforce, an evangelical Christian. You go on the website of the RSPCA, you won't find any reference to evangelical Christians being at the heart of the RSPCA. I have a cat. It adopted us, it came into our garden. I often say to my cat, you are so smart in choosing a Christian home. <laughs> also, medicines were changing. John Wesley wrote one or two books on medicines, but things were changing. Surgery was becoming very much part of the day. Everything was changing. And also, people were leaving the, the, the countryside and coming to the cities because of the Industrial Revolution. And with that came many, many diseases. And it's surprising how we have changed our understanding of things. If a bomb explodes in London and kills five people, that is tragic, but the nation comes to a standstill. During the cholera epidemic in London alone, 31,000 citizens of London died. And life just carried on. And so times were certainly a changing. And there's no way that this country, exploding as it was, could really be served by a Wesley here, a Berridge there, a Venn here, and a Whitfield there. It needed an army of those kind of people. As I've spent these past 11 months just reading everything I can about the 19th century in relation to the Christian church, I have, I have highlighted nine things that the church did 
to try and reach 36 million people that was increasing by by tens almost every day. Some of these are very, very obvious, but I'm going to mention people in relation to them, and hopefully we'll be able to apply it to where we are today. The first thing is this, church-based evangelism. The Lord Jesus carried on preaching in synagogues until they closed their doors, and then he turned to field preaching. The same with the Apostle Paul, he went into synagogues until they closed their doors, and then he went to the Gentiles. John Wesley and his likewise fellow preachers had the same philosophy, we'll keep preaching in the Church of England until the Church closes its doors. When the church closed its doors, he then went out into the highways and byways and became a field preacher. Likewise, so many of his other preachers. When he died, there were several kinds of churches left in in England and Wales and also in Scotland. There were those that were totally opposed to the gospel. Very violent and vociferous and uh, would vilify those who preached the gospel. Then there were those that really hadn't a clue. I'm sure you've come across those churches today. They're not anti the gospel, they just haven't a clue why they're there. Folk come, folk go, they just do it, it's part of their religious life. But then there were three other kinds of churches. There were Anglican churches that opened their heart to the gospel and became alive in the gospel. Just as there were Jewish synagogues in the days of the Apostle Paul that had embraced the gospel hook, line and sinker. And so here were synagogues full of Jews, totally convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. So there were Anglican churches that were alive in the gospel. John Wesley also secondly left lots of Methodist churches. That is, people who'd come to faith in Christ had been rejected by the Anglican church because it was dead, and therefore had formed their own Methodist society. And thirdly, there were lots of dissenting churches, that is, Congregationalists and Baptists, who, to be honest, were in the doldrums until the evangelical revival came, and were quickened by the Holy Spirit, and they too were alive. And so there were dead churches, in different churches, and then these three kinds of brands of Christianity, full of people who were alive and passionate with the gospel. And these churches and these men preached Christ faithfully. I could just rattle through a whole list of names, and you've probably read their arguments of people like this. Charles Simeon in Cambridge, uh, it's said that he put more men into the ministry than any other man in the history of the Church of England. His, his life story is incredible, and if you go to Cambridge, I can tell you actually where he's buried. I find it very sad that a man with this wonderful ministry, all that he has is a plaque in the floor which says C.S. Could be anything. But anyway, that's, that, that's where he's buried there in, in Cambridge. But a powerful, powerful preacher. And he preached how long? For 54 years. Wow. By the way, there was trouble in his church. I mean, trouble in his church. Uh, put your hand up if you've never had trouble in your church. <laughs> I love the quotation of George Verwer. Where two or three Christians are gathered together in the Lord's name, there you'll have trouble. <laughs> it's the book of Hezekiah. It's in the Bible anyway. Okay. A man in Charles Simeon's church wasn't too happy with Simeon's understanding of salvation. He thought he wasn't Calvinistic enough, and so he left and took a chunk of Simeon's congregation with him. What Simeon did? Every year he sent that man a check to say, thank you for looking after my sheep. That's amazing grace, isn't it? Yes, I would say, Lord, bless them and keep them. (laughs) So there was Charles Simeon. In Birmingham there was a man called John Angel James. Imagine having that kind of name to live up to. 
If you go to Birmingham today by the Bullring, Cars Lane, one of those bastions of, of kind of Christianity in Britain, John Angel James had a minister there for nearly 50 years, preaching the gospel powerfully, week after week after week after week. What astounds me is that right after him came a man called R.W. Dale, who was anything but evangelical. Interesting, is it? We'll come to Dale in a few minutes. All these kind of people were very, very woolly. Even people like George Matheson, who wrote All Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Wonderful him. But we would not have him in our pulpits because of his understanding of Scripture. Very, very wobbly indeed. Uh, in fact, we sing that hymn. We sang that hymn a short while ago, Crowned With Many Crowns. Do you know the author of that was a Roman Catholic? Interesting stuff, isn't it? We begin to learn about these characters. But anyway, people say, what good can come out of Nazareth? What good can come out of Berlin's ass? Well, what good could come out of these men? It's amazing. Uh, by the way, this is just an aside. We may not even see six o'clock, perhaps seven o'clock, going to this rate. A man once said to Mr. Spurgeon, Mr. Spurgeon, I was in Notre Dame last Sunday. And I was there during the celebration of the Mass and I felt the Spirit of God like I've never felt before. I said, Mr. Spurgeon, not butting an eyelid. That's fine. Even though I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. <laughs> In Scotland, in Scotland, you had Robert Murray McShane at St. Peter's uh, in Dundee. Again, a short ministry, but but passionate about the Lord Jesus. Down in London, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. I could keep going through all these people in the 19th century. Churches where you could walk in and hear the same gospel that John Wesley preached and George Whitfield preached. And we say, thank God for churches that are part of the institution that can still raise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It almost gets harder to stay in this institution and do that, but thank God for those who, who have done it in the past. And so in the 19th century, John Wesley and George Whitford and others did leave good church-based evangelistic churches that grew. They rose and they fall, fell, but they were there right throughout the 19th century. Secondly, there was what I would call outside evangelism. That is people who could not get on with the institution, nonconformists. People who struggled with the idea of church and state, or who just didn't fit in with what was going on even in the evangelical churches. And uh, men who were put in this category, people like Billy Bray. You heard of Billy Bray? That man who said that if you put me in a barrel, yes, and seal the barrel, then I'll, you know, shout hallelujah through the bunghole. How about this for a story? This is not made up at all. I should have brought the item along with me. My wife and I were over in America about ten years ago, and we were driving down the road, and, and we saw a diner. You know, that's kind of my level of eating. So we pulled into a diner, and we were just quietly as two Brits having our tea, when a very loud American came in and went round every table going, Hi, where are you from? And oh, I'm from Florida. Oh, I've got an auntie in Florida. I'm from Illinois. And I said to my wife, Finish up quick, quick. <laughs> but he caught us before we got out. And he goes, where are you from? And I said, oh, we're, we're, we're from England. Oh, he said, my relatives are from England. So I said, whereabouts in England? He said, from Cornwall. I thought, well, let's use an opening. He said, I was in Cornwall four weeks ago. And uh, he said, what were you doing there? I said, I was uh, preaching. That's interesting, he said. He said, whereabouts? I said, just outside a small place called Baldu. So he then pulled a card out of his pocket and said, I'm Dr. Billy Bray. 
He said, you saw me going around the restaurant? Yes, I did. I said, and I heard you. He said, I'm trying to do a bit of witnessing. Okay, that's your way of doing it. (laughs) But he said, I'm a descendant of Billy Bray. And he said, I'm a Christian, and and it's my full-time work, just going around diners, trying to talk to people about the Lord Jesus. Billy Bray was a kind of an exceptional character. He couldn't fit in anywhere. He was part of the Bible Christians, which, by the way, is a bit of a kind of uh, hit at every other Christian. I'm a Bible Christian. What kind of Christian are you? (laughs) It's like when you call a rabbi a Jewish rabbi. What other kind of rabbis are there? I'm a born-again Christian. That's interesting. Well, anyway, he was a Bible Christian, but they really didn't fit in. And and kind of most interesting group of people. And then there were the primitive Methodists. The primitive Methodists had no time for the Westerners. They realized that the Methodist church had now died, the church that Wesley had left. And they said, we need a touch of the old fire. Uh, And a handful of men, William Clowes, James Bourne, Hugh Bourne, they got together, they were converted men, and prayed for the touch of the Holy Spirit, all in the potteries just up the road, and the Spirit of God came down upon them. It was all triggered off by an American called Lorenzo Dower. He was an asthmatic, had problems breathing, he was a very ill man, he was a very small man, the most outstanding thing about him was that he never cut his hair. His hair went down to the bottom of his back. But the Spirit of God was upon that man. And I've discovered in my life that God blesses all the wrong kind of people. <laughs> <laughs> and Lorenzo Dow came to Mount Cop in Staffordshire. And he used to stand there and call for camp meetings. And he used to have 30,000 people gathering on Mount Cop to hear him preach. And the Spirit of God came down. You must go to Mount Cop. It's one of those great places uh, in our evangelical history. Thousands came to the Lord. But what is interesting is this. The Wesleyans were unhappy with what was happening among the primitive Methodists. And the Wesleyans laid down a three-line party with, if we find you at any of these primitive Methodist meetings, we excommunicate you from the Methodist Church. Isn't it amazing? That's exactly how the Wesleyans have been treated by the Church of England. And within 15 years of the death of John Wesley, the Westerns were now doing that to the primitive Methodists. The primitive Methodists had no time for kind of this upper-class clergy business. It's said that the Anglican Church is uh, the conservative party of prayer. And, and, and you would never find a primitive Methodist voting Tory. No, we're, we're working-class people. We're, we're for the man of the street. Uh, and so the primitive Methodists, again, they weren't really part of any establishment but God was powerfully at work within them. William Clow was one of their leaders. In fact, the primitive Methodists were called Clowsites at the beginning. William Clowes, how about this? You can read it in his biography. When he was converted, he was so thrilled at what God had done in his soul that one day, in his rented accommodation, he was praising God and thanking God for salvation. The lady who was renting the room before him, below him was about to go and commit suicide. And when she heard all the noise from above, she listened and knocked on his door and said, Sir, I want what you have got. <sighs> That's powerful, isn't it? And uh, I could take you on a tour of Britain showing you where all these different people are buried. Over in Hull, there's a section of Hull Cemetery called Prim Corner, where William Clowes, and it says, He was a burning and shining light. Just up the road from here in Anglesea Brook, is the Primitive Methodist Museum. It's worth visiting. 
where Hugh Bourne and James Bourne and these characters, and these were people outside of the church, reaching the working class, reaching people who would never ever really go into a Methodist church or even into an Anglican church. And then thirdly, there's what I call mission hall evangelism. It became very apparent to some people in the 19th century that in spite of what was going on among the primitive Methodists and in spite of what was going on in different Bible-believing churches, because the nation was exploding and growing so quickly that there were thousands, if not millions of people who had no contact with Christianity. And to be honest, is that not what we find ourselves today, really? You know, some churches, you know, may boast 500 or 1,000 people, but in a city of 7 million, what's that? It's peanuts. And so some people felt greatly exercised. We've got to do something outside of the box. To us, it seems very ordinary, but for them it was very radical. Let me just pick out three men. Three men who moved me deeply. Up the road in Manchester was a man called Frank Collier. Has anyone ever heard of Frank Collier? When I tell you about him, you'll be stunned that you never heard of him. Frank Collier was a Methodist minister who realized all that he was doing was beating the boundaries. And, and if you're ever involved in pastoral ministry or any Christian work, I'm sure you sometimes hit the wall where you say, all I'm doing is just beating the boundaries. You know, I sometimes know it as a pastor. You know, you have your kind of your nursing home day. And then you have your Alzheimer's day. You know, those people who've got Alzheimer's in your church, they're, they're still God's people, but they need visiting. And you sometimes come home totally drained, thinking, Lord, I've been studying, I've been pastoring, then I've got a prayer meeting tonight, or I've got a deacon's meeting. You think, Lord, I'm not really doing anything, other than just going around the boundaries. And then you kind of drive around and see thousands of people without Christ, and you say, Lord, we had a great Sunday, and the chapel was full, but that's penis. They don't hear. I'm preaching to the converted. And so Frank Collier felt like that, and he said to the Wesleyan Conference, Manchester is without Christ, what are we going to do about it? And they opposed him all the way. In the end, he dug his heels in, got a few people to support him, and he started the first Methodist mission hall. When John Wesley celebrated his final communion in Manchester the year before he died in 1790, 1,600 people broke bread around the Lord's table. A hundred years later, there were 38. That's how Methodism had declined. Frank Collier said, this has to be addressed. So the Methodist church said, okay, go on, go for it, and we'll see what happens, thinking he'd fail. He drew out a parish and said, I'm going to knock on every door in this parish and invite people to come along to hear about Jesus. Radical? Well, he was in his day and generation. The work grew and grew and grew. So many people came to the mission hall in Manchester. No one's ever told me this fact, but it's there in his biography. For 20 years, every Sunday evening, Frank Collier hired the Free Trail Hall in Manchester and filled it with 4,000 people. Why have you never heard of it? Kind of, why have I never heard of Frank Collier? He, he was an unbelievable man. When he died, he burnt, he burnt himself out. And sad to say, these, these mission hall pioneers were so hard work, they burnt themselves out. He died quite young. And uh, when he died, this is what Campbell Morgan said. He said, I can never walk the streets of Manchester again. Something has happened to the city. The light has gone out. What an incredible man. 
He used to have uh, a huge amount of staff, by the way. In the end, they, they planted so many satellite missions all around Manchester that on any given Sunday during his lifetime, 16,000 people were in his mission halls. And he used to have these staff meetings. And uh, I, I've got one, one little paragraph from his staff meeting, how he used to address his staff workers. And uh, just listen to this. John Wesley's dictum, my dear friends, was your business is not to preach so many times and to take care of this or that society, but to save as many souls as you can. That has always been to me an inspiration and a law. On entering the Methodist ministry, I was struck with the fact that the Methodist church seemed to assert just the opposite. To take the appointment on the plan, to dance attendance on members, they call it pastoral visitation, when there's no reason to, to pay attention to the routine business of the society, all this seemed to be first, and if done, satisfied the church. The one work to which I felt called of God, and which Wesley put in the first place, evangelism, was the one work I found it most difficult to do. I had to set my teeth with fixed determination in order to do this. The chief work of my life, and I found it so ever, ever, ever since every year. Everything calls for the attention first. Every official and member seems content if other things are done. And it is the easiest thing in the world to find an excuse in the crowd of demands for failing to be aggressive, enthusiastic, successful as a soul winner. Brethren, we must put Wesley's words first in our lives. Your business is to save souls. And, and I speak as a pastor, when you strip out elders meetings, deacons meetings, fabric meetings, you go to denominational meetings, you go to a minister's fraternal, and then you speak in this meeting and that meeting, and you suddenly think, I'm not talking to people about Jesus. All I'm doing is keeping the system going. And you question it, you will be ostracized. Believe me. And that's exactly what happened to people like Frank Covey. And then when he died, they put up a monument and said, what a great man. And isn't that what Jesus said? You stone the prophets, then when they're dead, you put up stones. So Frank Collier. And then there was uh, another most fascinating man, I, I love this man, a man called Peter McCrosty. I put him in for our Scottish contingent. Uh, if you go to Glasgow, uh, down at the bottom end of Glasgow, last time I was there, I visited, it's now a block of flats, was a meeting place called the Tent Hall. Anyone heard of the Tent Hall? Yeah, wow. Thousands were brought into the kingdom of God. Every Sunday morning, the Tent Hall used to produce lunch for a thousand people. Every Sunday. But anyone who was involved in the preparation of lunch had to be at the morning meeting. We used to have church lunches in our last place, and at the time we had a church lunch, we had a man there who spent all morning just stirring the soup. Let's have more church lunches, Pastor. Yeah, we know why, because you just want to stir soup. And Peter McCrosty said, no, no, we put worship before service. And so he had thousands of people uh, coming to hear the preaching of the gospel in a simple mission hall. He burnt himself out too. His, his, his biography is the most wonderful biography to read. The, the subtitle is this, The Man Who Walked Backwards. So, so why is that? Because he'd get about 500 people from the mission hall and march them down the main road of Glasgow and they'd be singing and he'd be conductor. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone knew him in Glasgow as the man who walked backwards. Yeah, whether he ever fell over, I really don't know. But uh, forgive me for saying this, but I, I did some rooting around and was up in Glasgow a year ago and actually uncovered the grave of Peter McCrosty and stood there and said, Lord, this man was a giant in Israel. 
led thousands into your kingdom. Again, a very down-to-earth mission hall. And then in Wales, there was a man uh, who, who uh, reached out in a very powerful way, a man called John Pugh. John Pugh realized that, that the church in Wales was not reaching people. And so what happened? He said, we've got to build mission halls to reach what we now call the unchurched. And so he first of all started off with a tent in Splot. Yeah, I, I love it. When I was training for ministry, I, I had to work with a minister in a church in, a church in Splot. And when I was there, the church closed. That's another thing that closed. I was there, the church closed. And uh, on the final Sunday, you know, there was a handful of people there. And on the final Sunday, the place was packed out. And how about this occurrence? The minister said, you know, folks, if you came every Sunday, we'll be closing down. So he started off in splot. In the end, this man, John Pugh, was responsible for building 42 mission halls all around the rest. For people who knew nothing about church life, church history, they knew they were lost, and in Jesus Christ there was a wonderful Savior. And we, we look at the 19th century and say, Lord, thank God for the tent hall in Glasgow. Thank God for the, the mission hall in Manchester. Lord, thank God for what John Pugh did all around South Wales and many other places around Britain. How about this? There was child evangelism. When John Wesley went to Glasgow, on one occasion he called a special meeting for the children of Glasgow. He wanted to speak to the children of Glasgow. Do you know how many turned up? 20,000. Youth workers, eat your heart out. There wasn't a bowling alley or a pizza place anywhere in sight. 20,000 children came and he preached the gospel and asked them, asked them to respond to Christ. And we, we think of people like Robert Rakes of Gloucester, powerful man in the world of Sunday School, John Pounds of Portsmouth, who started the Ragged School Movement, and also not far from where he used to live, a man called William Fox in Lechlade, he worked with Robert Rakes, and these men along with others said, young people need to hear about Jesus. And so here we are, nearly 200 years ago, finding people with a passion for young people. By the way, Hannah Moore, part of the Clapham sect, she had a desire to reach young people. And so she opened schools, but she only taught the children to read, not to write. She said, you don't need to learn to read to become a Christian. You you don't need to write to become a Christian, but you need to learn to read. You need to read the scriptures. So there were strange schools. She just learned to read, but not write. Fascinating. Why? Because she ran schools primarily so that young children could read about the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, the world has always been a very dangerous place for children. But you know something? It's more dangerous in the 21st century than in the 1st century. Have you thought about this? These days, if you are conceived, the chances of you being born are very slim. I say this carefully. Since abortion came into Israel, the Jews have aborted more fetuses than were killed by the Nazis. And they killed six million people. Sobering fact, isn't it? They've killed more of their own than were killed by outsiders. What about our country? So you may be conceived but not even born because you're aborted. And then you come into this world and 
we've had this whole kind of world of paedophilia exposed to it to the point it gets quite sickening. It's dangerous being a child. Then there's the danger of the internet. and Who do you trust these days? And it has a massive impact on youth work. Most of us probably had overnight sleepovers and sausage sizzles and midnight hikes. Who would dare do that these days? It's impacting child evangelism without any doubt. We have to be very careful. Rightly so. But in the 19th century, there were people who said, Lord, how can I reach the young people? And so there were people who were solely committed to child evangelism. And we thank God for that. Forgive for this mention again, but I just think it would be helpful. Ten years ago, I was in Birmingham. And in Birmingham, there's a little cemetery called Key Hill Cemetery. It's where the Chamberlain family are buried, as in Neville Chamberlain, but Joseph Chamberlain. It's also where R.W. Dale's buried, the minister of Carr's Lane. Also Robert Robinson, oh to grace how great a debt, daily I am constrained to be. But his grave can't find it. Harriet Martineau is there. I got talking to a lady who was part of the Friends of Key Hill Cemetery. She's not a Christian. She said, I have two books at home that list most of the inhabitants of this cemetery with a few lines about each person in the grave. Would you like copies of it? I try to be nonchalant, if, if you want to. <laughs> so she kept her word, and I have them at home, and I was just reading through them in relation to this, because I read through them, and several things leapt out. This is a non-Christian account of all the people who are in the cemetery. Let me just read two extracts. William Walbank died 1904, so he was a good 19th century man, aged 63, for over 50 years connected with Sunday school work at Mount Zion Chapel as a scholar, teacher, secretary, and superintendent. Fifty years. If you've been involved in pastoral ministry, you come across people who after five years have done their bit. I've done my bit, Pastor. Anyone else want to take on the work? I guess I'm quite worn out. Fifty years. This is one of many that's in the book. John Shoal, printer, bookseller, stationery of this town, deacon and secretary for many years at Cannon Street Chapel, for many years, he was registrar of marriages. He exerted his influence in leading many young people to Christ. This is non-Christian writing, this. Wow. So child evangelism is not new. And I say, Lord, thank God for those in the 19th century who were committed to teaching your word week after week after week, year after year after year, decade after decade after decade, teaching the word of God. Powerful stuff. In fact, how about this fact? By the end of the 19th century, 75% of children aged 5 to 15 were either found in Sunday school or a ragged school once a week. 75% of 5 to 15 year olds were in Sunday school or a ragged school once a week. Thank God for these kind of people. And then there was literature. As, as more people became literate as they came into the city and had to read, then, then evangelicals were, were very, very passionate that we should try and get the gospel down on paper that people can start to read. And then we have this whole business of, of writing tracts. It's a basic fact, is it not, that I mean, as, soon as, as soon as you have printing, not only do we have the scriptures being published, but also you have lewd material, blasphemous material, kind of low-level literature. That was all around in those days. Evangelicals said, why can't we put out some good, wholesome stuff? And so, people like Hannah Moore, she was the queen of track writing. Some of them, I look back at some of the titles, and they're, they're rather twee. How about this? 
Her, her first track was called The Shepherd of Salisbury Plain. I like that. Here's my favourite one. The Story of Sinful Sally. Mm. The History of Mr. Phantom. Yeah, she knew how to write that track. And then even people like J.C. Ryle, a bishop. J.C. Ryle wrote 300 tracks. If you're Anglicans, go to your bishop and say, why are you not writing tracks? What are you doing? Yeah? And he wrote lots and lots and lots of tracks. And people like John Newton and, and Henry Venn and Zachary Macaulay, all connected with the, uh, the Clapham sect, they were all great track writers. One bishop, the bishop of... Uh, Worcester said all this track writing is terrible. It's encouraging the illiterate to learn to read. And that's bad news for this country. Nice man. By the way, they printed two kinds of tracks. I say two kinds of tracks. Same message, different kind of paper. One for the middle class. One for the working class. That would be interesting to know what kind of person you would be in terms of what kind of paper you received. Yeah, and sometimes, I have to admit, there's a little bit of snobbery and a little bit of looking down the nose sometimes of this kind of view, but that's where they came from. But at least they were trying to do something. And then there's dear old Mr. Spurgeon. Every week his sermons were written down and it was called the Penny Pulpit. You know, 25 years after he was dead, his sermons still being published. And guess what? When David Livingstone went into the heart of Africa. He took a pile of Mr. Spurgeon's sermons. When he came back, he went to the Metropolitan Tabernacle to personally thank Mr. Spurgeon that his words had kept him on his feet. And there's this great moment in, I'm not making this up by the way, there's this great moment where Mr. Spurgeon met Mr. Livingston. And it was the Mutual Admiration Society. Spurgeon said to David Livingston, you know, I'm a great admirer of what you do. And I think Livingston is greatly slandered. You know, oh, he destroyed this and destroyed that. And he was, no, no. He was a man with a missionary heart. And so Spurgeon said, I admire your courage in sharing the gospel to Africa. And David Livingston said, well, Mr. Spurgeon, it's you who kept me on my feet with your sermons. And I was telling someone around the lunch table today, the man who discovered the value of paraffin, a man called Mr. Paraffin Young, it was his nickname, James Paraffin Young, he used the proceeds of his discovery of paraffin to help David Livingston as he crossed Africa. Incredible stuff, isn't it? We could keep, I could talk all day about these things. And so Christian literature was growing out in the form of tracts, in, in, in the form of sermons, uh, and just communicating through literature. By the way, if I just flip back, when it came to children, I forgot to mention this. I mentioned Robert Wormsley when I was talking about uh, James Jewell and, and, and also... Alexander McLaren, the man whose letters came off the stone. Robert Wormsley is buried there. He was a Sunday school teacher. He was a jeweler, but he was a Sunday school teacher in Manchester. And every year he wrote a song for his Sunday school class. One year he wrote this for them. Come let us sing of a wonderful love. Tender and true. Out of the heart of the Father of love. Flowing to me and to you. Wonderful love flows from the heart of the Father above. Jesus is seeking the wanderer yet. Why do they run? Love only seeks to forgive and forget. You know how the hymn goes. Come weary wanderer. Oh, 
Imagine having a Sunday school teacher who wrote that kind of stuff for you. Beautiful, isn't it? By the way, if you're involved in youth work, is that the kind of stuff that you want for your children? So there were people with real hearts for young people and also for the writing of literature. Then here's another interesting thing. Here's the sixth thing. What I call social amelioration. Social amelioration. Evangelicals realized that the good that people like John Wesley did must carry on. I mean, John Wesley didn't just go around preaching. He also showed practical kindness. He, uh, John Wesley once wrote a letter to a man to encourage him. And, and in the letter, he slipped a five-pound note. And the man wrote back to Mr. Wesley and said, Thank you for your encouragement and the note in which it was wrapped. <laughs> so Wesley was a very, very practical man, hence the reason why he wanted to care for animals. And evangelicals said, we just can't preach the gospel and leave people where they are. We've got to do something about it. And so in the 19th century, the evangelicals were incredibly active. They realized that social kindness is not the gospel. It is an outworking of the gospel. And if you give someone a sandwich but don't share Christ, all you're doing is giving them a sandwich. We have many people these days who do lots of social amelioration and think it's the gospel. We have Muslims in Preston who give out soup and sandwiches. But that's not the gospel. That's common grace. That's human kindness. Surely that should be God's kindness in us coming out of people. But as evangelicals, we say, we do that because we're also concerned about people's souls because we've got something better to give than cheese and soup, but Jesus. And so evangelicals did incredible things. I have a number of recordings at home of a Methodist preacher called W.E. Sangster. And uh, I have about seven or eight sermons of his that I got hold of. Boy, he could preach. He used to preach for about 58 minutes. Powerful, powerful preacher. And I have occasion at home where he, he preaches about atheists, some agnostics. And he said, he was preaching, it was very cloudy the day he preached. He said, my dear friends, we haven't seen the sun today, but we've still got daylight. And he went to say that in terms of social kindness, people may not see the clear sun of the gospel, but the spiritual daylight that's coming from the gospel. And then he went on a real rant. He said, have you ever seen an orphanage built by the atheists? Or a hospital opened by the agnostics? He said, but as you go around London, and he listed all the London hospitals, he said, they were all started by the saints. Then he ran through all the homes that were built for children and orphans, started by evangelicals. And then he said quite clearly, in a good cockney accent, and he said, and then there are those who say, what has the gospel done for Britain? My dear friends, if it was not for evangelicals in the 19th century, we'd have lived in the dark ages. When Lord Shaftesbury died, 500 evangelical societies lined the route that he was involved with to say, thank you for being our leader. 500. And some of the things that evangelicals got involved with were absolutely incredible. For example, if you've ever read Dickens, you've probably read of the Marshalsea Prison, the debtor's prison. I can never understand the British mentality. A man gets in debt, so you put him in prison. 
So how's he going to pay off his debt when he's in prison and can't work? Clever stuff. We've got a great heritage. Evangelicals felt exercise for people who, through sometimes no fault of their own, found themselves in debt and in prison. So what did evangelicals do? They formed a society to relieving people who were in debt. In their first 11 years, here's the facts and figures, in the first 11 years they paid the debts of 7,743 debtors and got them out of prison. And in 1829, Joseph Hume, an MP in Westminster, he told the House that this society, since it had started, had released 43,399 people who had been in prison because of debt. 43,000. And again, to quote Mr. Seinster, and then folks say, what has the gospel done for Britain? How many agnostics were buying people out of prison? How many atheists? None. And this was the church, Christians giving out of their own money. And by the way, when, when these people were brought out of prison, they were given a tract. It said, thankful. And it said, you have been given your freedom because these we people care for you. Have you thought of saying thank you to him who died on the cross to give you eternal freedom? Again, just showing practical kindness and, and the love of Christ. Several years ago, Ian Hislop, an interesting character, he, uh, he did a little series called Victorian Do-Gooders. If you saw it on television, very well done. Not all of them were evangelicals, but two-thirds were. And I've got to mention George Muller. Ten thousand children passed through his homes. The homes are still there in Bristol on Ashley Down, 10,000. Charles Dickens didn't believe it. He thought it was a scam. And so Dickens called the train from London to Bristol to meet George Muller. He admitted, I had to eat my words. By the way, on a personal note, three generations back in my family, through debt and through illness, Two of my family members found themselves in the mother home. And I went with my mother. It was a thing that one has to do. And we went into the archives and, and we found all the records of the two family members of mine who were in the mother home. It was so moving to read. Explain why they'd been put in the mother home and what had happened. And then at the very end it said this. They, they both trusted in Jesus. Wonderful. And so here we have people showing social amelioration and kindness in the name of Jesus. It affected our nation. Evangelicals did it. And then this will make Roger so pleased. Moodyism. That's not a reflection on his personal character. It's on the hero of his life. Moodyism. If our nation thought it had seen big crowds in the days of Whitfield and Wesley, it hadn't seen anything yet. When D. L. Moody came to this country at his first meeting, I think there was around 26 people. The first meeting, prayer meeting, was about half a dozen people. And yet in the end, it's said of Moody that he preached to over a hundred million people around the world, and over a million people responded to the gospel. And D. L. Moody is one of those kind of characters, you either love him or you hate him. 
but you cannot be indifferent to him. And by the way, I have a, a number of recordings at home of, of, of uh, interesting old preachers. I have a recording of Dale Moody. You can listen for £10 a minute. <laughs> He's reading the scriptures. It's, uh, it's, most, uh, it's, it's a very, very old recording. It's the only one we have of the man. But it's very interesting to listen to. He, uh, he turned this country upside down. And yet he was a maverick. But, but he, brought, he brought a kind of new form of evangelism. It was almost John Wesley up a few notches. And yet he's the last kind of man you'd ever put in the pulpit. On one occasion he was preaching in England. And a man came to him and said, You know, during your sermon I counted 26 grammatical mistakes. Do you have those kind of people in your church? <laughs> I used to have a man like that in my church. In the new sheet. Any kind of split infinitive. He used to play me through crosses while I was preaching. He didn't know I could see it. I wanted to go to the bottom corner. <laughs> it was a split infinitive this morning. Yes. So this man said, Mr. Moody, you've uh, you made 26 grammatical mistakes. What he said? He said, sir... I'm using all the grammar I know to glorify God. What are you doing with your grammar? <laughs> yeah. And by the way, he could have been that bad. Mr. Spurgeon, F.B. Mayer, Andrew Boner, all stood shoulder to shoulder with him and said, this man is preaching a passionate gospel. He may be a different kind of personality from us, but he's preaching the same message. And R.W. Dale, he was somewhat liberal and he kind of, he surprises me at times. He was very doctrinal in his preaching. On one occasion, by the way, she said aside, one of the deacons of Cars Lane, Birmingham, who had sat under John Angel James, said to R.W. Dale, Pastor, you preach an awful lot of doctrine. It's going to kill the people. He said, let them die. That's the kind of man he was, let them die. He went to hear D.L. Moody when he came to Berlin. He went four nights running. He was mesmerized by the man. And after it was over, he asked, could he meet D.L. Moody? This is what he said to him. He said, Mr. Moody, I've come to hear you for the last four nights. He said, I've looked at you, and I've looked at the results, and I can see no correlation. <laughs> Therefore, I conclude it must be the Lord. <laughs> I'd want to give that man some muscular Christianity, wouldn't you? <laughs> he said, that's fine, as long as God gets all the glory. That tells you something of the stature of the man. And he came to this country on seven occasions preaching. And on his final tour, it said that he preached to over two and a half million people. And so you can see how things have changed over the century. All this stuff is going on. Moodyism. Social amelioration, reaching out to children, people outside of the establishment, people inside the establishment, literature. Suddenly the church is kind of buzzing and coming alive. And then there's this, I've got to mention it. Jewish evangelism. There was a time when evangelicals in this country were very passionate about reaching out to Jewish people. Romans 1.16 Jew first. And then the Gentiles. And I find it very interesting as the Spirit of God was moving through the 19th century over the evangelical church, there was a real burden among evangelicals to reach out to Jewish people. And amazingly, God began to work in the hearts of some very significant Jews. 
And by the way, Robert Murray McShane, that's not a Jewish name, he was a Scot. He had a deep passion for the Jewish people. Horatio Bonner, Andrew Bonner, had a great passion for the Jewish people. It's a most kind of moving story. I think of two powerful Jews who came to Jesus in this country. Adolf Sophia. He was great friends with Mr. Spurgeon. He became a Presbyterian. He saw the light, but not all the light. But uh, he preached passionately and, and, and had a real Jewish mission going on in London. And a man called Ridley Hersham. He was one of the pioneers of the Evangelical Alliance. And these men were Jews reaching out to Jews. It almost seems, and am I preaching if I am, please forgive me, but it almost seems that evangelicalism in the 21st century is becoming slightly anti-Semitic. Do you know something? All the best books I've read have been Jewish books. Genesis. Do you know all my heroes are Jews? Gideon, Amos, David, Paul. Do you know that my Savior is a Jew? I get very upset when people crack jokes about Jews being tied with their money. The most generous Jew in the world is the Lord Jesus. For on the cross it was Jesus of Nazareth. King of the Jews. And so thank God for the Spirit of God that was moving in this country that made Jews feel safe to be here and with that safe haven evangelicals could share Jesus with them. That was wonderful. But the final thing before we bring it to a close is revivals. In spite of all these different works that that evangelicals were involved with, in spite of all that was going on, God was moving over and beyond that in terms of revivals. And so there was the primitive Methodist revival that I mentioned. There was the great Cornish revival of 1814, where in a matter of a few weeks, 6,000 people were converted. Wales do a wave of revivals. Many, many revivals throughout Wales. And then there was the famous 1859 revival, where incredible things happened in England, in Ireland, and in Scotland, and in Wales. More so, really, I would say, in Wales, and in Scotland, and in Ireland, than England. But incredible things went on. Again, a supernatural, natural move of God. But in spite of all these things, in spite of all that was going on, there was a rut. There was a rut. So that when the church came into the beginning of the 20th century, the rot was beginning to show signs. And we'll certainly deal with that when we come to, uh, to, the, to, the, to the lecture tomorrow. I mentioned at the end of our talk yesterday that I feel like the author of Hebrews, where you spend so many verses on a few individuals, and you say, hang on a minute, time is running out. Uh, and I could tell you about David and, and Jephthah and Samson and so on. And I just got a whole list of people. I spent my entire year reading their biographies. And it kind of sticks in my throat that I just give them two seconds. It takes me a fortnight to read the biography. And then, but, but, in, but in England, Charles Hulbert, 
if you're Methodist, was a great Methodist evangelist. Thomas Langton, he was known as the Yorkshire evangelist. I, I read the uh, biography of a man called Reginald Radcliffe. I'd never heard of him. He was a Liverpool solicitor who felt exercised about people's souls. So he closed his office as a solicitor and spent the rest of his life going around preaching. He only used to preach for 25 minutes. But an incredible man. He led hundreds. Moody so trusted him that when he went to America, Moody said, preach for me. And by the way, this is the kind of man that he was. Whenever there was a public hanging, he and a colleague would get tracts published and go to a public hanging instead of people. The man who's going to be hanged in an hour, he knows when he's going to die, but do you know when you're going to die? And where are you going to go? And by the way, in the, eight, in the 19th century, a public hanging in Britain could gather a crowd of up to 30,000 people. You can check all this stuff out if you want to read it. Front row seats went at £5 a time. How sick is the human heart? And here's this man going to public hangings. He would turn away at the public hanging, but would go around witnessing, saying, Lord, I've got a mission field here. Reginald Radcliffe. Richard Weaver. Powerful preacher. In Scotland, James Turner. David Matthias. And then the Holiday Brothers. In Wales... Christmas Evans, the one-eyed North Walian preacher. Yes. He died in Swansea. He's buried behind the railway station. Can you believe it? The number of folk I've taken to see Christmas Evans' grave. Grace's final words were, drive on, coachman. Drive on. Christmas Evans, John Elias, Frank and Seth Joshua. Mention those tomorrow. In Ireland, Jeremiah Manili. Powerful stuff. Let me say this in closing. When the Spirit of God moved in the 18th century, it seems that by and large, by and large, the people who were converted were working class people. By and large. When you analyze all the people who were reached during the 19th century, by and large, it was mainly middle class. That doesn't mean that working class and down and outs weren't reached. They were reached, but by and large, the church gradually became more middle class. Let me read you something that will absolutely shock you to show you how middle class the church has become. I'm going to read it carefully. I could have brought the book here with a man who has a PhD who's researched all this. In the 19th century, an agricultural worker earned £53 per year. The headmaster of an average boarding school earned £170 a year. The stenographer who wrote down the sermons of Dr. Joseph Parker, you heard of Dr. Joseph Parker, he earned £100 a year. Dr. Joseph Parker, his annual salary, was 1,700. Mr. Spurgeon's annual wage was 1,500. Now you understand why I'm a Baptist. (laughs) (laughs) I believe in Mr. Spurgeon. To Mr. Spurgeon's credit, he gave away every penny of his annual income. 
He gave it to young men who were struggling in churches. He gave it to his orphanages. He gave it to his Bible college. So he wasn't building an empire. But can you see? An agriculture worker, 53 pound. Mr. Spurgeon, 1,500. Joseph Parker was the highest paid non-conformist minister in Britain, 1,700. Hang on a minute. What kind of dynasty is this? And you can see gradually how middle class the church became. And finally, let me just read this interesting paragraph from a book called Transforming the World, written by a man called David Smith. Some of you will know that man. Listen to this, most interesting. Anglican evangelicals made considerable efforts to reach the poor in the inner cities by means of services held in secular buildings. An interesting testimony to the ineffectiveness of such methods is provided by Charles Dickens, who recorded his impressions on two visits to the Britannia Theatre in Hoxton. On Saturday night, he joined the regular audience to watch a pantomime and reckoned that 2,000 people were present, mostly mechanics, dockers, petty tradesmen and the like. They were neither clean nor choice in their lives or conversation. The following night, the theatre had been hired by evangelicals. And Charles Dickens returned in order to compare the play on Saturday evening with the preaching on Sunday evening. The second night crowd was considerably larger than that of the Sunday, but Dickens says the audience of the two evenings consisted of entirely different sorts of people. The great mass of the usual patrons of the Britannia Theatre had decidedly and unquestionably stayed away on Sunday night. The new crowd was an imported one made up of respectable strangers, attracted by curiosity and drafts from the regular congregations of various chapels. The contrast was so marked that Dickens expressed impatience with the preacher's address to an imaginary outcast, since the whole appearance of this Sunday crowd made obvious their respectable character. Let me put that in 21st century terms. You put on a large evangelistic event in your church, and probably 90% of that congregation is made up of people who've come from other churches to eavesdrop and to watch and go, wasn't that a really nice night? That was a lovely message. But the unsaved never really heard. And so while all this was going on, gradually people became spectators. Until in the end, Christians became a non-contact spectator sport. Well, that's the 19th century. Bit of a sad note on which to leave it, but it's reality. And then came the 20th century. And it gets incredibly interesting. Okay, I'll leave it there.